0: This is Mo and this is Sarah and you're listening to the podcast Birdshit. We started this podcast to share our love of birding with other enthusiastic birders in the world. Hey everyone, welcome to Birdshit Podcast. I am super psyched about this episode because I felt like today was the first day that I really experienced winter outside of the holiday season and we are taking you into a winter wonderland today.
1: A winter wonderland of birds. A winter
0: birder land. Mo, how did you experience winter today? I did a lot of cross-country skiing. Actually, the first time I went cross-country skiing, we went out for like an hour and a half. We did like five miles. And then I spent that same amount of time, an hour and a half, in the lodge eating bagels. (laughs) It was like 50-50, like exercise, eat bagels. Uh, And then I went back out and I cross-country skied again. Damn. And then I went to a mall, which also somehow seems like something people do in the winter because like, what else are you going to do?
1: Yeah, no, you definitely go shopping. You eat out, you go shopping, you see movies in the winter.
0: And you went out to eat. So you covered that part of it. Yeah, I had vegan
1: ramen from an LA pop-up store. It was amazing and had several cocktails as well. And jello shots, which were amazing, so... We're so ready for winter. And I might go see a movie later tonight. Seriously? It is already kind of late. I know. I will definitely have to have a Red Bull before I go see a movie. (laughs) That's how old I am. We are going to talk about birds that love being in winter wonderlands.
0: That's how we bring it all around. Yeah. Birds like winter, too. And to be more specific, we're going to talk about birds that like to spend at least part of their time in the Arctic. Unfortunately, that means we won't be talking about penguins because penguins are only in Antarctica, but we're going to talk about some cool Arctic birds. Sarah, why don't you go ahead and get it going? This bird is really cool. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) I know. I know. Wait, just wait until you hear
1: about it. This bird is actually probably more appropriate for you to talk about, Mo, and that's because it is the Atlantic Puffin. Atlantic puffins are probably one of the most easily recognized birds, and they're quite adorable. They have black coats, white chest, and underbelly, and a bright, beautiful orange-red beak, and they're really hard to miss because of this. In fact, Mo, you may be lucky enough to see one of these in Maine during their breeding season, which is from late April through August. Dude, I'm doing
0: that. No, we. are We are doing, we are doing that. that. We're taking a boat. We're going to go look at puffins. It's going to be amazing. Mo and I will be on a boat outside of Maine between
1: April and August. Definitely going to happen. Probably in June. Yeah. So that's when they come ashore to nest on islands. Not only are they found in northern U.S., but also as far away as Spain, with about half of their global population residing in Iceland. Also a good reason to go to Iceland, I guess. There you go. Speaking of where to find these birds, half of North America's population breeds in one location which is Whitless Bay, Newfoundland, Canada. Looks like we'll also be visiting there soon because I, as you know, have been to Canada several times and we love Canada, so now we're going to go to Whitless Bay. So when they are not ashore on breeding season, they spend their winters out on the open ocean. During this time, they undergo their annual molt. The puffin, unlike land birds who tend to lose their primary feathers sparsely, They will shed all of their primary feathers at one time and dispense with flight for about one to two months. So they're basically just out in the ocean, chilling, featherless birds.
0: Wow, just naked birds sitting in the water.
1: Yeah, it's probably a really dangerous time for them. (laughs) I mean, I imagine if I was naked in the ocean, it would feel pretty dangerous.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah seriously Ooh. how do you seem to stay warm i mean they lo- they lose their primaries primary first best why would you want your secondary feathers to keep you warm in the middle of the ocean yeah you hear that secondary feathers get out
1: of here a bunch of bullshit secondary feathers
0: <laughs> no one even wants you no one wants
1: you like many seabirds the atlantic puffin is long lived averaging 30 plus years for their lifespan. The oldest recorded Atlantic puffin was banded as a chick in Norway and lived to be about 41 years old. But it's even likely that puffins can live even longer than that because band durability has expanded to last beyond 40 years. But previously, the bands that they put on chicks probably didn't last longer than 40 years and wore off. So it probably is comparable to like if you were going to marry rich, the age that you'd want your husband to
0: die at. Like, probably, like, 50. Obviously, neither of us have ever thought about this. (laughs) I know.
1: Obviously, neither (laughs) of us married rich,
0: which is the problem. (laughs) Uh, Those daydreams go on. I know.
1: They they will always go on. The puffin diet consists mostly of fish that it forages for while swimming underwater. It swims fast and can reach considerable depths and stay submerged for up to one minute, which is a really long time. They do most of their foraging within 50 feet of the surface, but are known to dive up to 200 feet below surface. Oh
0: my god. Yeah. Isn't that insane? That would be a great Speedo sponsorship. (laughs) Speedo sponsoring the puffin. (laughs) I just pictured a puffin in a Speedo and it's really great. I pictured it slow motion
1: running on the beach like James Bond in a Speedo. (laughs)
0: Baywatch puffins. Baywatch puffins. So... Those are some facts about the Atlantic Puffin. Next, we have the dove keys, which are roughly about half the size of the Atlantic Puffin. (laughs) They're pretty much like the chunkiest little ducks you've ever seen. So um, these chunky little dove keys are the smallest of the Puffin family, a.k.a. the auk family. So they are often called little auks. And they have an all black body with a white belly. And they also have this cool little white arc above their eye, which not like an eyebrow, but like, like in their eye socket area. Um, it's cool. So it's like they screwed up their white eyeliner. Yes. Okay. And it's not like a pretty little cat eye either. No, I'm surprised you knew what that was. I had really racked my brain for that one. I'm like, what YouTube titles have I seen lately? Oh, yeah, cat eye. Yeah, as a as a fact, Mo,
1: I have never seen you wear makeup and you did not even wear makeup for my wedding. No, I know, sorry. No, don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. I I love this fact.
0: I actually when we when I was at this mall today, I walked by like a lipstick sampler or like a li- like you know, they have like the lipsticks out you can like put on. I'm like, who does that? That's so disgusting. Well you don't actually put it on your mouth. Well, you know, somebody had to do that. Like, there's (laughs) no way. Somebody's like, oh, free makeover. I'm just going to put this sample lipstick on my lips and now I have herpes. Like, it's so gross to me. Well, usually they have like Q-tips
1: and everyone's supposed to take a Q-tip and then you use the Q-tip to put the color on your hand.
0: I'm not... I don't know. Okay, man. okay, that's the etiquette I Whew. follow, but there are well, probably- I don't know the etiquette, yeah. so obviously I'm right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're well, right. Oh uh, yeah, right. Uh, okay, going back to my ox now, my little dovekeys. Dove keys breed in colonies and I mean colonies. Dove key breeding colonies are the largest colonies of any ox species, some of them numbering in the millions. What? The dove key breeding population in northwestern Greenland is among the largest and densest breeding aggregations of all auks, with an estimated population of 30 million birds. That's a lot of bird shit. It's a lot of bird shit, man. And these birds might be chunky, but man, can they dive. Dove keys propel themselves underwater with their wings, not their feet. A dove key can dive as far as 30 meters, roughly 100 feet get under its prey, and then zigzag its way back up to catch fish from underneath. They also have voracious appetites. They mainly eat crustaceans, especially cope pods, a small crustacean that kind of looks like a shrimp. Random fun fact, but plankton on SpongeBob SquarePants is a cope pod. (laughs) Yeah, learned that in Wikipedia today. Yes! (laughs) Anyway... Uh, A dove key that weighs 150 grams needs to eat about 60,000 coat pot individuals a day, which is equivalent to about 30 grams of dry food weight. But that is, like, so much food for a little bird. Because 150 grams is, like, a third of a pound. I mean... That is
1: so much food.
0: Yeah, I know. They're like the humpback whales of the birding world, really. Damn. Yeah, so because they're super hungry all the time... In a pinch, they will also eat small invertebrates and fish.
1: Yeah, jeez. If you can't get 60,000 coat pods in a day, I guess you have to eat something else. Pretty nuts. So anyway, that's the dove key. Well, the next one I'm going to talk about is the Arctic tern. Arctic terns are slender terns with long, angular wings and pointed wingtips. They're between the size of probably a crow and a robin. So, you know, they're pretty average size. They have a small round head with steep forehead and extremely short legs. Breeding adults also have a deeply forked tail and black cap. So these birds are really cool because they are strongly migratory and they actually see two summers each year as they migrate along a convoluted route from in their northern breeding grounds in the Antarctic coast for the southern summer and back again about six months later. Essentially, Arctic terns migrate from pole to pole.
0: Holy crap. Yeah.
1: Recent studies have shown average annual round-trip lengths of about 44,100 miles for birds nesting in Iceland and Greenland, and about 56,000 miles for birds nesting in the Netherlands.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: These are by far the longest migrations known in the animal kingdom. They would
0: not be given a frequent flyer program. <laughs> Dude, like 56,000 miles. I can't comprehend that, actually. No. No. For an annual round trip, like, when, what, when do you have time to do anything else? I don't know. If, if ever I think I'm short on time, I'm like, well, it could be an arctic tern flying constantly. Constantly. Just doing everything while flying. During their, sh- what
1: I imagine to be short nesting season, <laughs> both sexes will build the nest. Baby arctic terns will either have gray or brown feathers, and they're super adorable, with no known reason yet for why they come in two different colors. Because they both end up the same color as adults. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Do you think that like Arctic Tern parents talk about like, are they going to be gray or brown? Like the way that like human parents are like, is it going to be a boy or a girl?
1: I really hope we have a gray one. Yeah, probably. They've got to.
0: But one really cool note
1: is that most Arctic Terns can find their way back to their nest as adults. So they can find their way back to where they were hatched.
0: I mean, I guess if they're navigating from pole to pole every year, they're probably pretty good at navigating. Yeah, they've got they've got everything mapped out. They're like, yeah, I know where that is. Boring. They'd be good at Minecraft.
1: Oh my god, now I want to play Minecraft. I just want, I love digging in the tunnels. That sounds so
0: funny. It's
1: true. That's my favorite part of Minecraft, It's just digging in the
0: tunnels. Everyone else is like, look at this cool world I can build above ground. And Sarah's like, I'm going to go in the tunnel. Yeah, I'm like, I'm digging down to the lava.
1: (laughs) I just like finding shit. (laughs) Arctic terns are known to fly gracefully with rowing beats over open waters, diving down to pick fish from or just below the water surface. Their diet consists of small fish, insects, worms, mollusks, and crustaceans. They tend to hover above foraging areas and nesting colonies more often than their similar common turn. And they migrate over both oceans, as we mentioned, and they like to stay out far into sea. These
0: birds migrate everywhere. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, honestly, I could look outside and probably see one now. Oh my gosh, that's cool. Wow, great find. Arctic turrets. Hope I see one one day. Probably won't because I don't spend my life on the ocean.
1: Yeah. Also, I'm not going to try and find one because it's probably migrating a lot.
0: I don't know. I'd like to go to Antarctica
1: someday. I'll go. All right. We're doing it. We're doing it. Except I got to get a really nice North Face coat before we go. Prioritize. Dude, I wanted one of those long ones that goes like down to your knees forever. The ones that are just sleeping bags with a hole cut out of the bottom? Oh, Yes, that's what I've wanted. I have not brought myself to buy one yet.
0: I'll just buy you a sleeping bag and I'll cut the hole out the bottom. On our entire trip, I'll just stand up like like
1: a worm. I'll be a worm who just stares out the edge of the boat. <laughs> I'd be
0: like, Sarah, look at that. Get your binoculars out. And you'd be like, fuck you, Mo, You put me in this cocoon and you dragged me into Antarctica. I probably wouldn't be that upset.
1: I'd probably just like, I'd create something that my mouth could just flip them up into my eyes. <laughs>
0: We would figure out a way to make it work. I'm ready for this invalid life. Uh, All right. Well, before we get too far down whatever track we were going down. It was dangerous. We're going to move on to our next bird, the northern fulmar. Fulmars live in both the Arctic and Antarctic regions. The northern fulmar lives in the North Atlantic and North Pacific, and the southern fulmar lives in the Southern Ocean. Since we're focusing on the Arctic for this episode, we're going to talk about the northern fulmar. The fulmar is a gull-like bird that's a relative of albatrosses and shearwaters. Two ways that it visually differs from gulls are it has a tube-shaped beak, and when it flies, it has a straight, stiff wingspan rather than, like, kind of the curved or V-shaped wingspan that gulls often have.
1: I can't get over the tube-shaped beak. I know, right? It's kind of weird. Tubes are weird.
0: Yeah, there's something about the word tube, right? Yeah,
1: as a beak, like, as someone who's, like, you have a tube mouth, I'd be like, mm. but I, we kind of do have tube mouths.
0: Well, yeah, it's a different kind of <laughs> you're thinking tube like an inner tube. this is a tube like a pipe,
1: yeah, I know that's what I'm thinking of. Because when I open my mouth, it's the shape of a
0: pipe uh, can't i can't think I can't take you seriously without just thinking about flow jobs. <laughs>
1: Okay, uh, we can delete this later, but I have to tell you, I was at the dentist and I was
0: getting a filling. I can tell you right
1: now I'm not deleting this. (laughs) Okay, my woman asked if my jaw hurt and I almost made a blowjob joke, like, oh no, my jaw's been open longer than this before.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she was asking because she thought it was overused. (laughs) She's like, oh, damn girl, I don't know. You seem like you've had your jaw open a lot lately. (laughs) Maybe it wasn't for your own safety. It was just like an observation she had. (laughs) She's like, I can tell there's some real
1: wear and tear around there. So (laughs) So that was
0: what that made me think of. (laughs) You and your tube mouth. (laughs) Me and my tube mouth getting into trouble again. All right, well, all right, I chose the fulmar because, like this bird, I, too, frequently have indigestion. (laughs) I definitely thought it was going to go to two mouths, but (laughs) no, it's indigestion. Please continue. Nope, we're talking about heartburn. Okay, so the name fulmar comes from two Old Norse words. Ful, meaning foul, and mar, which means gull. This refers to its awful-smelling stomach oil. The stomach oil serves two very important purposes. First, fumars can spray this oil out as a defense mechanism, like the world's grossest sprinkler. That's literally all I could think about when I read this. Can you (laughs) imagine like (laughs) a mouth open just like like that's all I could think about? Okay, so get this though. So the oil gums up the wings of predator birds causing them to plunge to their deaths oh that is so badass it kind of reminds me of the superhero reflux in the incredibles 2 oh my god yes yeah. <laughs> the old guy who just like spews lava okay that's what that reminds me of second and probably more disgustingly they can regurgitate their stomach oil and use it as an energy-rich food source for long flights or feeding their young Which to me just gives a whole new meaning to the world gross airline food. Oh my god, that's...
1: They're like, well, we haven't eaten for a while. Let me just throw up whatever is left in here. Oh, gross.
0: But the stomach oil is really vital for fumars because they are pelagic, meaning they spend their entire lives at sea, and they live for a long time. The northern fumar is one of the longest-lived birds, with data from one study showing that a mean adult lifespan is about 32 years. They also like getting it on much later in life and don't breed until they're at least eight to 10 years old. One study found an individual that started breeding at age 20, so his parents must have really preached abstinence. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, okay, so I think we're seeing a common trend among these seabirds is that they all live for a really long time, which is interesting.
0: Apparently the trick to old age is just live in the Arctic. Yeah, live out at sea by yourself. Yeah. Even for such a long lifespan, though, fulmars managed to do plenty of breeding. In Scotland, several northern fulmars, banded as adults in 1951, were still breeding in 1990 at ages likely greater than 50 years. And lastly, a bit of good news on our Historically Bad News Birds podcast. The population of northern fulmars in the northeast Atlantic has dramatically increased over the past 250 years. At one time, there was only one colony found in northern Iceland, and there were no colonies on either the Faroes or British Isles. Now hundreds of colonies exist along the coast of these islands. It is unclear whether this change has resulted from natural oceanographic changes or from an increase of food available from fishing vessels that they scavenge, or if there's some other factor. But either way, good news for these birds.
1: Dude, I would like to be a northern falmar if you are... Banded in 1951 and 40 years later,
0: you are still getting it on. Like, yeah. Seems like a good life.
1: Yeah, that sounds great.
0: I think there are probably like a lot of Gen Xers out there who are pretty jealous of that stat. We
1: should definitely be preaching about the Northern Fulmar in some nursing homes. Just some thoughts. Well, you talked about the Northern Fulmar and I'm going to talk about the Northern Gannet. So the Northern Gannet is close to the size of a goose and one of the largest seabirds in the North Atlantic. Adults are snow white with black wingtips and yellow heads, while juveniles have a uniformly brown color. These birds appear to be pointed at both ends, having a very sharp spear bill and a spiky tail. The species is monomorphic and is related to the blue-footed booby. Monomorphic means that the male and female appearance is similar, including size, so it's really hard to tell them apart. Pairs are usually monogamous and have been known to incorporate interesting items into their nests. So the base for their nest is, you know, general composites of seaweed, mud, feather, and bird shit. But researchers have also found shotgun shells, rope, false teeth, a gold watch, fountain pens, and a catheter, amongst other things. They're hoarders. Yeah, they're hoarders. I call them adventurous decorators, but <laughs> yeah, very posh. Besides being those adventurous decorators, northern gannets are a heavyweight among the plunge diving birds, a couple of which we've already talked about. They forage by plunging headfirst into the water, sometimes from heights as high as 100 feet above the surface. As they can dive from such high heights, they can reach speeds of 100 kilometers, which for us is about 62 miles per hour, when they strike the water. Going at such high speeds allows them to plunge as deep as 72
0: feet in search of fish, which is, like, insane to me. Yeah, that's, I'm, like, trying to process that, and I can't. How does that not hurt? Can you imagine if one of them, like, accidentally belly flopped? Accidentally belly flopping would really suck, but I think with their spear-like
1: bill, that helps propel them into the water. Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah. The Gannett's supposed capacity for eating large quantities of fish has led to Gannett becoming a description of somebody with a voracious appetite.
0: Oh, I've always needed that definition in my life.
1: Yep. While they have a voracious appetite and need to eat a lot, this may help, be helped by the fact that they have excellent eyesight. Their sharp eyes also allow them to detect prey underwater amid the reflected and refracted light where water and air meet their eyes also have a special structural adaptation for plunge diving, and they are able to see well underwater immediately after striking the water. It's like a GoPro. Yeah, they have eyeball adaptations to help them with plunging in, because they do go from such high heights and so quickly that they can immediately open their eyes underwater and search out their
0: prey. That's way cooler than any normal goose.
1: I know. I think this bird is super cool. Like, I don't know. I love adaptations too. So the fact that they their eyes have structural
0: adaptations for plunge diving is super interesting. All right, good find. Well, moving from a big old bird like the northern gannet to a little small tiny bird, I think I have found the cutest bird of the north, and that is the snow bunting. These are actually songbirds and That means they're pretty small and compact, and they've got these little bitty beaks and little beady eyes. Their breeding plumage, for the males at least, is an all-white belly, breast, and head. And the males have an all-black back, and the females have sort of a dark, streaky back. Perfect for both of them to help them blend in with the rocky crevices in the high Arctic breeding grounds. They are the northernmost breeder among land-based birds, meaning they're not like all of our seafaring friends that we've talked about so far. And they inhabit any patch of tundra not coated in ice. They build mossy, grassy nests in holes in rocks, or in a crevice between rocks, or in crevices under rock. They just freaky love rocks. And the female will build the nest at the back of this hole or crevice, making them almost invisible from the outside. If nest sites are limited, which they often are... They won't nest among rocks, just like out in the open. Instead, they'll nest in barrels, metal cans, boxes, buildings, construction rubble, basically anything other than just like out in the open. They like to be sort of set back. And since nest sites are so rare, they will often reuse nests from year to year. These adorable little songbird nuggets breathe in the Arctic, but you'll find them spending their winter scattered across most of Canada and the northern U.S., with rare sightings seen as far south as New Mexico, Oklahoma, and North Carolina. So, if you want to try and see one, winter is the season. I want to see one. Look for them in crop stubble or along lake shores where debris forms a ring around the water's edge. And make sure to bring your patience and some binoculars. They tend to crouch down when foraging, which enables them to blend in extremely well with the ground. So if you're not sure if you see them or not, just like watch for movement around the ground because you might not even be able to see them just with your naked eye. They're also pretty restless in the winter, obviously, who isn't? And they will fly to a new foraging spot every 10 minutes or so. Just look for a flurry of black and white as they dash around between these different foraging spots. And you're also not going to want to look for a super bright white bird either. Their winter coats take on a more brown, rusty spots over the white plumage. Oddly, the color change in their coat isn't the result of molting, aka losing their feathers for new ones. The change from male's brownish winter color to its pure white happens when the guys rub their bellies and heads on the Arctic snow up north, wearing down the brown feather tips to reveal immaculate white feathers underneath. That's cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's like, it's not actually molting. It's just rubbing against snow to rub the brown out of their feathers. I've never heard of that. It's a nice little snow shower. That's the first bird I've heard of that has color change due to
1: not molting.
0: Yeah, it's super weird. Huh.
1: Well, I'm going to talk about a bird that is also known for its white color. And that is the white-tailed eagle. The white-tailed eagle, sometimes known as a sea eagle, are a mostly Eurasian species. They have a dark plumage with a paler brown head and body, yellowish bill, and the signature white tail. They are nicknamed the Flying Barn Door in the UK where they are found, as it has the widest wingspan of any eagle on the
0: planet. Whoa, that's crazy. Especially when I think about like all the other eagles that I've seen and how big they've looked.
1: The eagle measures
0: anywhere from 26 to
1: 37 inches in total length, and their wingspan is is 5 feet,
0: 10 inches to 8 feet. Oh, my God. That bird's wingspan is bigger than I am tall. Than most people are tall, I should say. Yes.
1: Yeah. That's like an NBA player wingspan. Dang. Kobe wings! <laughs> Kobe wings. These birds were pushed to extinction in the UK area, but reintroduced from Norway in the 1970s. They currently breed only in Scotland, where there are about 106 nesting pairs. These eagles are known to mate for life and breed in the same territory, which can cover up to 70 square kilometers, Whoa. which is huge. Wow. And both parents will raise and tend to the one to two chicks they hatch. White-tailed eagles spend much of their day perched on trees or crags and may often not move for hours. It is said that up to 90% of their day may be spent perched, especially if the weather is poor.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Delirler's hanging out. Interesting fact about these birds is that they've inspired some folklore among fishermen in the past. They believed that when a white-tailed eagle appeared, fish would suddenly go belly up and come up to the surface. This led to some fishermen smearing eagle fat onto their fishing lines for hopes of better catches.
0: That actually is not too surprising to me because for a bird that spends 90% of its day just perching, if one shows up, it's pretty likely that something weird has happened.
1: (laughs) One's like, no, man. I'm gonna go out. I've heard a bunch of fish are gonna turn up in this spot. Yeah, exactly.
0: Oh man,
1: I know. I had to. I had to do a bird of prey.
0: Of course you did. I know. So moving on to our next bird, we have the ruddy turnstone. The ruddy turnstone is super easy to spot among groups of sandpipers and other shorebirds. Which, by the way, is always impossible to identify any kind of shorebirds among each other. But Good news for the ruddy turnstone, it's super easy to spot because they have a beautifully patterned black and white head and chest, plus bright orange legs. They look like calico cats, like that's actually what they've been assimilated with. And it's saying something because out of nearly 350 species of shorebirds, there are only two in the turnstone family, the ruddy turnstone that we're going to talk about today, and the black turnstone, both of which are found in North America. So, today, like I said, we're going to focus on the calico colored ruddy turnstone. These birds are long distance migrants, like pretty much every bird we've talked about here, that breed in the Arctic tundra but spend their off seasons on rocky shorelines and sandy beaches on both North American coasts, as well as South America, Eurasia, Africa, and Australia. Damn. So, migrating from the Arctic all the way to some of those far off destinations is no small feat. For one thing, ruddy turnstones aren't going to win any parenting awards. Parents often start their migration south before their offspring are ready to go, meaning that young turnstones have to figure out how to fly hundreds, nay, thousands of miles on their own. Young turnstones take their first flight when they are around 19 days old, and then they start their flight to migrate just two days after that. So imagine flying upwards of 600 miles a day after just learning how to fly two days before that.
1: Yeah, these parents kind of suck. They're like, all right,
0: kicking you out of the nest. I know. Like, you don't even get a chance to, like, know your childhood home. No. Damn. They're just like, nope, go find our winter home. See you down there. Bye. (laughs) They're
1: they're like 75-year-olds who have a kid in Michigan, and then, like, as soon as winter hits, they're like, okay, bye. I'm going to Florida.
0: Yeah, exactly. And for migrant birds, they're super fast, too. They average between 27 and 47 miles per hour. Damn. They crank it. Another thing that makes migration difficult is that birds get their fuel source from fat, unlike us carbo loading, pasta gorging humans. If a ruddy turnstone doesn't get a toby belly, it <laughs> might not make it to its wintering grounds. Oh. Uh, there's something about ruddy turnstone, ruddy and tubby, it's kind of I college. know, it's so cute. During the breeding season, they primarily feed on adult and larval flies and midges, uncovering their prey by flipping over rocks, shells, and seaweed with their stout, slightly upturned bills. Their palate widens in the non-breeding season. Small crustaceans, freshly dead fish that washes up on shore, mollusks, and bird eggs all make it on the menu. Wait, they eat bird eggs? Yeah, so if they come across an unattended gull or turn nest, they will not hesitate to break open eggs and eat the insides. So I guess they like their eggs over easy. Oh, uh, they're also like little cannibals. Yes, yeah, super weird and gross. Ugh. Well, I they, they guess it's the fat they made. Yeah, they definitely get plenty of fat. Their bodies also help to make this foraging easy, during the breeding season especially. Ruddy turnstones have special feet that are somewhat spiny, and their short, sharply curved toenails help them hold on to slippery rocks when they're foraging for food. They also have super short little stubby legs that give them a low center of gravity so it's less likely that they'll fall over.
1: Well, the Ruddy Turnstone, not ever a name of a bird I would
0: have thought of. It's like the name of a coastal cottage in England. Yes. You know how like all these houses in England have names? It's like, yeah. oh, welcome to Ruddy Turnstone.
1: Come in for a cracker.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd get a biscuit or a trisket.
1: A trisket, that's what I'm after. I want one trisket.
0: I'd just like to stop in for a trisket,
1: please. Trisket, governor. If I ever have a British home, which I never will, but in my rich life, fantasy. The rich
0: guy that you could have married. I would call it the ruddy turnstone, which also sounds really oddly sexual to me for some Ooh, reason. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. Most things on this podcast do sound sexual to us, so it's yeah, not a big surprise. Yeah, that's true. So
1: those were our birds of the Arctic. Obviously, there are a lot more out there, but we wanted to talk about some birds who are experiencing this cold weather like us and see how
0: they're doing. Just checking in. Just checking
1: in on these Arctic birds.
0: Knock, knock. Sometimes winter feels very long, but sometimes it feels very short. And I figured we should probably get a winter episode in, but while we still can. I feel like our winter is going to go long here because we had a
1: pretty easy November and December January, we got dumped on a little. I'm really nervous. We're gonna have like April snow.
0: Yeah. One thing that I thought was interesting in researching this podcast is that some of these species, it seems like their populations are either increasing or not decreasing too much. But then others like the Arctic tern and the, the white-tailed eagle are drastically decreasing and like almost on the verge of it being in like severe population thing. So it's weird that for birds that seem to have similar habitats and have similar lifestyles, whether they're at sea or migrating a lot, that there's such a difference in how they've adapted to these changes in our world.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Because you'd think that they're all experiencing similar outcomes from climate change since they have similar habitats, but...
0: Yeah, different food sources and different ways of feeding. Like, obviously, there's a lot of factors. But I feel like sometimes on the podcast, we either talk about birds that are super rare or like in a serious problem but it's like it's it was kind of nice to find some birds that are seeming to thrive
1: yeah some birds that are doing actually okay
0: yeah maybe that's our good news for winter
1: yeah our good news for winter is some of those winter birds are doing a-okay a-okay they're just loading up to go out to eat cross-country ski and watch a movie
0: (laughs) you get on it arctic birds yeah go enjoy that until we see you guys again, make sure to keep your eyes to the skies. And maybe the seas, based on this episode. For this episode, keep your, definitely your eyes to the seas. Yeah, just get on a boat and sail out into the, middle of the ocean and see you in six months. Bye! Bye. <laughs>